Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Rise to Common lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is David Drury. David is a uh, semi-regular guest here on the show. He's been on many times. Uh, we'll have seasons when he hasn't been around for a bit, and then he'll come back and I'll have him on a bunch. So he was just on a couple weeks ago, and I'm glad to have him on again. I really love it when he's here. I really wanted to have him on for one of the passages during Lent. The uh, Lent uh, lectionary this year has a series of uh, long conversations with Jesus all spread around from the Gospel of John. And I love talking about those particular texts with David. So I had him back on the show for that. So uh, he's author of about a dozen books. You just look him up on Amazon. You'll find him. One of them is called Transforming Presence that uh, actually centers on these conversations with Jesus in the book of John. Uh, so I thought I'd give that particular book a shout out. I think I think it might come up during the conversation today. It's implied. I can't remember if I mentioned the book in particular, but yeah, so uh, really glad to have him back on the show. If you're enjoying the show today, just hit the uh, share button on your podcast player app of choice so you can pass this on to others so that they will enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text, find ways you can support the show. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with David. So uh, yeah, we're looking at John chapter four, big chunk, five through 41 to get the whole story in front of us. The uh, lectionary in Lent sometimes will do these. It's one of the few times they'll do these big stories from John, but you really do need the whole thing to get it. So I, I don't mind. But if you're not in the mood to read the whole thing, we can take turns if you want. But if you're game. We can split it up if you want to do the first section. I'll do the last. Okay. I'll get us started and hand off to you. So here's John 4, 5 through 42. So then they came to a city of the Samaritans that was named Sakar, And it was uh, where the plot of land that Jacob gave to Joseph, his son. And uh, there was the well of Jacob or Jacob's well. And so Jesus then, wearied as he was from his journey, uh, was sitting uh, next to or on the well, depending on how we translate that. And it was about the sixth hour or noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, for Jews do not share utensils with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, saying, Please give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir or Lord, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is very deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give to them will become in them a spring of water welling up to life eternal. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in speaking well when you say I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I love that line. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Dear woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship are to worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that The Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ or the Anointed One. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. Continuing in verse 27 in the New International Version. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one asked, what do you want? or Why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you reap the benefits of their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. But because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And we ask that as we explore this story, 
uh, we may hear and encounter your word afresh today. We ask that you do this by your Holy Spirit, uh, who is with you and with us and is working with all those who are listening in to our conversation today. So God, do your thing with your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so I don't always give my uh, guests a few choices, but I, I will reveal today that I gave you a few to choose from, and you said this would this would be the one. I gave you a bunch of stories from John to pick yeah. from Plant, and you were like, because you know you wrote that. I was thinking about your book, Transforming Presence, that centers around these different conversations with Jesus, and I was like, oh, you'd be game for any of these. And Yeah, that's true. I'd be game for any of them. Yeah. And so you picked this one. I thought I'd just start by asking, why'd you pick this one? What, why is this one special on your heart today? Well, there's so many reasons. I mean, there's so much in this passage. I didn't know you're going to ask me that, but I'd say, oh, I'm sorry. That's the start. No, no, no. It <laughs> needs to be informal. Uh, off the cuff, I would say it's just energizing to me how long the conversation is. Like, Many people have claimed it's, and I, I haven't been able to disprove it. It's the longest conversation with Jesus in scripture. It's just the disparity of the two people involved, the contrast with Nicodemus, the prior passage, which is the, the most famous, you know, scripture in the whole Bible is there. Um, John 316, but then there's, there's this one. And I love that. I just love the interaction, the fact that it's with somebody that he's never talked to before. So it's a very cold turkey thing. It's very relatable um, in some ways, more relatable, even though there's a lot of things culturally in this passage that are, you know, twisty and turny. It's just, a, a, and it and it is a true conversation. A lot of conversations, quote unquote, are not in the Bible. There's sort of somebody that says one thing and then Jesus says something back. Whereas this has a back and forth. It truly is conversational. It's, it's like, you know, the Samaritan woman's hosting a podcast on the well, you know, sitting at the well where it goes back and forth. Long form media. <laughs> it is. And, uh, and so I but just, it isn't I just, just think a speech. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. The dialogue isn't just like a jumping off point for a speech, which. Is most of what's happening, say, in like John 14 through 16, which I guess technically would be a longer conversation, but not with one person. And it's mostly unidirectional. He's doing most of the talking. Right. There's an occasional comment or question, but he's really dominating the conversation there, as makes sense. He's, it's a farewell address with occasional Q&A, you know, mm -hmm. whereas this really is this random conversation with this person. And you're right. And even Nicodemus, which definitely starts out in dialogue the dialogue breaks off by about verse 10 and then it's basically a discourse for about 20 verses. And this one never really goes into discourse. It truly stays conversational until really they're interrupted. Part of what's fascinating is there, they are interrupted by the disciples presence, even though they don't address her or don't question why they're talking at the well, which uh, the, you know, John pains to point out things they probably should have said or would have said, in a typical setting. So the, the one gets the sense that these two would have been talking for longer. I love it. Yeah. No, it's so great. Well, yeah, I did kind of put you on the spot with why'd you pick it, but uh, in a way you ended up hitting a lot of the highlights of the pet text that we might not even get to because it, it is a beast, but I'm glad we, we did the whole thing. I'm going to go to our super random detail and narrative detail. Then we can get into maybe some of the content of what they talk about. Mm -hmm. 
But there's a couple the, – the narrative detail towards the end because you just mentioned the interruption where – go again, and the, the book of John is very wordy when it comes to conversations. But narrative details are often very minimal. So you tend to assume there's a reason why he's pointing this out, right? So there's that little detail you pointed out about how they kind of ignore her but also even – don't even address him about what happened. They're almost like pretending it didn't happen. It feels awkward is my best read on it. But then it says that she leaves her bucket there. She leaves her water jar. And I've always found that so mysterious. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like mm. what, what, what's the possible significance of that? She left her water jar and went into town and then tells what she, what she saw. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the Bible scholars would you know, and those that really are into it up to their eyeballs on, you know, this as literature. Uh, my sense is that this is written in such a way to be used. Like th this is written, not it's written, almost giving you these little nuggets intentionally, like literature does that intentionality to say. And for me, I would say that this is written saying she left her jar as almost an illustration of the prior conversation about water and that she's now yeah. sort of symbolically left behind the physical water, choosing the living water instead. And then of course, Jesus uses that. It doesn't refer to the jar, but refers to the food. And again, this sort of contrast of the physical food and water and even physical harvesting contrasted with the spiritual water and food and harvesting. Right. And so it's this, I feel like it's put there quite intentionally for us to almost for a preacher to use for, for somebody to share in some way. Now, how intentional that was right at the beginning, I don't know. I mean, you might just say, well, a historian would have noted that the disciples weren't there to record this conversation. And so this would have been Jesus retelling them what was going on in the conversation, but they would have seen the water jar left. And so if he told them about the living water part of the conversation, it's probable that the writer would pick up that little like, oh, and she did leave her jar there. That was a little because like you said, it's an awkward thing. It's almost like when you sometimes you do that when you walk into a room and you the conversation shifts and you're like, were they talking about me or like, what was the conversation that I interrupted? And it definitely has that feel at the end. It's an interrupted long conversation that got really deep. Yeah, no, definitely an awkward moment. And they, oh, that, I love, I hadn't thought about that eyewitness problem that, because of course the book of John in particular, and I think the, the other uh, synoptics, I think presuppose this, there's arguments, uh, Richard Balcom has made pretty strong arguments in favor of the kind of, that all the gospels are claim, whether explicitly or implicitly a kind of eyewitness a grounding from which they come. John explicitly asserts right. it. <laughs> and so that, that little detail then becomes, you know, so these eyewitnesses could bear witness that they left Jesus behind, that they went into town. They would have seen the woman and they saw the jar, right? It's like, that's their only direct yeah. information to this conversation. Oh, now, of course, I don't want to speculate too much, but you can, totally imagine the conversation of at some point on their journey now to Jerusalem, 
you know, because clearly he's leaving him in the dark for now because they don't right. ask him. Although they do stay there for a couple of days. And so it's possible. Correct. It's possible. The woman. Yes, because she's already true. sharing. You know, he told me everything he did. That begs the question of like, well, what did he say? And she may have rehearsed the conversation. And then the disciples took note of that. I mean, certainly this was a high contrast experience for the disciples who did not think of the Samaritans as people they would have been hung out with, which is right here explicit in the text. And we know that from the context back then. And so certainly, you know, it would have been a curious story to tell for generations, especially once, you know, and I mean, and, and we, we have in the Great Commission of Jesus saying, you know, Samaria was explicitly mentioned in the Great Commission. And so I wonder if that even underscored, oh, you guys remember that story? You know, remember when Jesus talked to that woman at the well and, and they're like, oh, we got to tell that to each other. And that's a good, you know, example of what we need to be now doing once Jesus ascended. Oh yeah. And the, just the delightful historical question of the roots of the Samaritan mission before Easter <laughs> narrated here only in John, you know, we don't, we get some, we get some Samaritan encounters mm-hmm. in Luke and some of the other gospels, but a full blown like revival two day revival <laughs> where Jesus comes to town and the plants these initial seeds fittingly with that ax comparison, because all the language of harvest and, this has mission, you know, kind of missional missionary resonance and certainly would have in the the years after Christ's ascension. Uh, this would have been a, a beloved story among the Samaritans and even just among the disciples in general, because it becomes then kind of a model. This is what's going to happen in every other town we go yep. into. Yep. Philip ends start, up going gonna, to Samaria. It's a big part of the story. You're going to encounter that person of peace who's going to welcome you in and it's going to go from there, you know? <laughs> You're going to offer living water. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, David Drury, and we're looking at John chapter 4, starting around verse 5 and going through verse 42. So there, I mean, there's so many lovely little moments here, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of the sayings of Jesus. But there is this moment that I've been mulling around. I, I actually just happened to have been in this passage going through the book of John with my uh, high school Bible study. We just happened to have been in this passage. And they, they helped me notice how ambiguous this little moment in the middle when her, her husband comes up. Yeah. And the language is very, uh, a little vague. When he says you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Because of the way this serm- this text is was usually preached for me growing up, I always heard it as she's a serial divorcee, right? Kind of that's often how it's kind of described. And that may be true. But of course, it's also possible that her husband's died. That's one possibility that I hadn't thought of. And that we were just kind of talking about what might this mean, which also makes her quite unlucky. But then the other possibility is that none of these are husbands were her husbands. The phrase have a husband could be, as is obvious from the last line, the one you have now is not your husband, right? So you can have a husband without them being your husband. So I was wondering if there's a possibility that she may not have been married to any of these men and that this is that she's been someone who is a kind of something that these guys have on the side. They're married to other people. 
I don't know. I, I don't know how to interpret it for sure, but I was wondering if you've given any thought to the possibility of what might we be. We don't have a record of whether Jesus was using air quotes when he said husband, <laughs> your, your, your husbands or have, have, <laughs> have <right>? yeah, <laughs> in the biblical sense. No, that, yeah, 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 that, yeah, yeah, exactly what you said about this interchange, I think is important as interpreting this. And I think it's a good thing for us as we interpret and read scripture and is to realize how many presumptions we bring into a passage. We just jump to things. And certainly we as preachers do that because we're trying to help people wrap their minds around it and relate to the story. I do think that usually people approach this passage with sort of her being the the loose woman so, or is the way I've heard it so many times. And I just think that's an example of a huge presumption here because of the way marriage worked in those days, because of her not really having any control over that. No woman would. That's why Jesus talked about divorce the way he did directed to men and giving a woman a certificate of divorce kind of uh, instructions in Matthew, as I recall. So I do think that it is left a little bit vague. There, There is a little bit of a formulaic way in which he's talking there, too. He's kind of saying it in a, you know, oh, oh yes, you, you, what you speak is very true. It kind of has a real, like, uh, wise person's, you know, way of speaking that is different than the other ways he's speaking. And so, you, you could definitely read into that a sense of him either trying to be humorous or clever or giving – sometimes you do that with someone like, you know – when you, you're sort of doing a gotcha, like, oh, I gotcha, but I'm sort of not pointing it out. I'm being overly uh, polite in order to point out my dig of you. Uh, that could be read that way, too, I think. Some of that is just the way people talk back then. We don't really know um, how they inter- interchanged. But I do think it is very, very important to point out that we jump to this thought of her being like a prostitute or other kinds of ways of talking about her that are just not in the text at all. And in fact, you know, the way she interacts with him before and after that, he points this out about calling your husband, which if he knows this, he knows that question's going to come back with an answer. That's not, she didn't straight up lie, which is why he responds the way he does most likely, but she didn't quite give the full picture who would in that scenario. And so I, I, I think and why is. did he bring it up in the first place? Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. I can give you this living water, but you know, we'll need your husband here. Yeah. For that. Yeah, for sure. So I think that, I mean, you know, he, what I love is actually what happens exactly after that in verse 19. Yes. She, she clearly is like, okay, you're a prophet. She quickly surmises, you know, stuff you shouldn't know. So she wants to have a theological conversation with him she points out a difference in their practice of worship um, between the Samaritans and Jews here to this person who's not, who's not only a man, but clearly a rabbi. And then now she knows is a prophet and she doesn't like run away in shame. She yeah, doesn't take his question as a like, Oh, I, uh, Oh no, you're a prophet. I'm not worthy to have this conversation. She's, she's like buckles up and says, okay, let's have a theological debate. <laughs> And I'm like, wow, this woman is something. Um, you got to appreciate her courage to, after what he just said, say, oh, I've got an opportunity now to have a little worship theology debate with a prophet. Wow. Considering they weren't even supposed to be talking at all. 
Yeah, and the way that the conversation is oriented then towards truth and belief, I think that's so important because, especially with even interpreting what we bring, the baggage we might try to bring in or presumptions we might try to bring into this conversation, because our ways of speaking the gospel are so truthfully but narrowly centered on sin and forgiveness, we sometimes read that framework onto stories when it's just barely there at all, right? Because Jesus does not in any way frame her situation as a situation of sin. There is sin there, but that's not how he frames it. He doesn't say this is something that's wrong with you or something that was wrong that was done to you. He doesn't even bring that up. I, I think that is the case, but it's not, it's just not what he's talking about. And in fact, the discussion of her husband doesn't come back. It's only spoken of in the abstract as everything I ever did. So it's about truth. It's about him being a prophet. It's that he knows things that yeah. he shouldn't know. And then their conversation is about that. It's about you worship what you don't know, right? Do you want to know what the truth is? Because you don't have to come down to Jerusalem. You don't have to become a proper Jew first if you just believe in me, right? So there's this, and then all the language of worshiping in spirit and truth, right? I'm just, I find that sometimes this is a story that we're just tempted to say, hey, here we've got a sinner that we can talk about how they got saved by grace. And that's great, but that's yeah. like trying to take some kind of language from Paul or whatnot and kind of like lay it onto a story that actually ends up missing, you know, what's kind of special here, yeah. which is this is this is a woman who has theological commitments, has views about religion that are different than what she assumes Jesus's are and finds out that, of course, Jesus doesn't agree with the Samaritans that this is the right place to worship either. And he actually says salvation comes from the Jews. He decides with the Jews if if that's the right question, but then he moves beyond it. It applies to us so well because we there's a sense in which people want to talk about their past or the past. And Jesus talks about the future. So it's about her past a little bit there he gets into. And then she is joining with him about she she sort of doesn't want to talk about her past even though she admits that he knows it whatever it is either it's painful or it's shameful one of the two and that's usually the case about everybody's past right not just her and then but she sort of elevates it to the past conflict between the jews and samaritans right so you have this when we're interacting with people you might meet somebody you know on the subway in the library at school or at work and we do this. We talk about issues of faith. It comes up somehow. And what people do all the time, they kind of want to talk about a hot button issue, right? They're like, well, wait a second. Let's talk about politics or sexual ethics or your view of this, that, or the other thing that they heard about either on television or their uncle is some crazy wild-eyed religious person they disagree with and they want to argue with you, but they're really arguing with him. And so she kind of does that little maneuver of like, okay, let's debate this issue. And what I love about Jesus is he elevates it one notch further. He's like, hey, I'm not here to debate the past or your past. I want to talk about the future. Here's what's coming. And I love that that in and of itself, Jesus plops hope into a situation that could have been a, a, a shameful or painful conversation about her past. And instead, 
there's this hopeful thing about the future that does transcend the sides of the debate, right? And I just wish I did that better. I wish all of us as Christians did that better. I've not thought a long time about how to set that up, but I just wish that I just want to keep this conversation in mind that that's probably how Jesus, if Jesus met somebody today on the subway or the library or, you know, in a, in a school or, or workplace, he would probably do the same kind of maneuvers, even though today we know all the hot button issues that people would want to bring up. And I just think, you know, Jesus may, it's, it's, and again, it's about truth. He, it's not like he would skirt those things. He's the one that brings up the husband, right? But he's so quickly and relaxedly, is that a word? Reactedly. It is now. Relaxedly. Uh, All words are made up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. Sounds like a man who studied German. That he sort of eases into that so quickly. He's like, oh, great. These are the conversations I wanted to have in the first place. That's why he brought up living water. Yeah, I love that, that reference to hope, the future as it comes in on the present. And there's this double phrase, and this will this will come up again in John. I think it's the first time he uses it here when he says, a time is coming, and then says something, and then follows it with, a time is coming and is now here, as if to say, so there's this future reality, but that future reality is already pressing in on us right now, you know? And it's like, yeah, we can have the debate, and of course, yeah, the salvation comes from the Jews. I love that phrase, so... Mm-hmm. That's its root, right? It's you can't, you know, if if we accept the terms of the debate, I'm with the Jews against the Samaritans. He's almost basically saying, but I don't accept the terms of the debate because I'm not stuck in the past. And the future thing that's coming that we all anticipate is that you're not worshiping on this mountain or that mountain. It's not about the location. That's the one that's the that stays in the future, right? The hour is coming neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Will you worship the Father? And I want to check that if it's a plural or a singular, the you there. Yeah, it's a plural. So y'all, y'all, which could just mean in general, anyone listening, or it could mean the Samaritans. Basically, you're not going to be worshiping. And there may even be a little nudge wink towards the destruction of the temple that he does predict in other places, right? Saying this whole like worship system that we build all our divisions around is you know, it's going the way of the Buffalo. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. that's not the final scenario that we're heading towards. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. And I I feel like he's, he's sort of prophesying what's about to happen for these two days. This is going to start to happen. It is. It is. And, and it becomes, you know, it's such a foreshadowing of that. And then, you know, she's not done. Of course, she, she kind of has her, her last card to play right where she then yeah, plays yeah, the messiah yeah. card it's so great <laughs> it's well, just, when the messiah comes we'll start the, when jesus comes yeah, back we did this even because, after because Christ, he's we'll he's brought up the future he's brought up hope he's brought up this kind of coming age that's going to change everything right so in her framework and mindset that's messiah talk that's the next age talk that's end times talk right and so i don't know whether she wants to have a conversation about the Messiah or whether this is sort of that conversational, you know, sort of exit strategy. Sometimes people have where they like sort of say like, you know, oh, someday I'm sure I'll figure that out. Or let's talk about that next time we're together. Or, you know, like you and I's grandfather on mom's side, he would always just end a conversation saying, whatever, (laughs) 
Leave the <laughs> room. Whatever. He, whatever. <laughs> that he didn't, a conversation he didn't want to have, right? And it's like, ah, that conversation is done. So I don't know if this is kind of her whatever, but of course the, the massive irony is he's the person he, like she literally, he, he even says it in such a way that it has added sort of weight and added surprise. He doesn't just say, Oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah. He, he doesn't do it some perfunctory way like that. He's like, I, the one speaking to you, I'm the one. I am he. And I'm the Messiah. Yeah, and it's even better in the Greek because it's ego e me. I am. Mm. I am, comma, the one speaking to you. And she just said, when he comes, he will tell us all things, right? So he's basically saying, I'm doing that right now. I'm telling you all things, right? Like, it's one of his most explicit claims to being the Messiah, actually. It's it's pretty straight. It's pretty stark because he, he usually tries to be a little more circumspect sometimes. This one's pretty bold. Yeah. I am dash the one who is speaking to you. Yeah, no, it's got a ton of weight to it. What a moment to walk in and then they show up. Oh, geez. <laughs> the disciples show up at like the worst moment, but in a way at the best moment, because in a sense, like you were saying, the conversation is actually has reached its zenith. And what needs to happen is for her to be, because what it means to, I mean, we'll see this pattern again at the end of the gospel with another person that he addresses woman, right? I'm thinking Mary Magdalene that to really have the encounter with the Lord is to then go and tell, right? And so she's becoming the missionary that they forgot to be. They just bought bread. Exactly. <laughs> they, <were> supposed- <laughs> they harvested where they reaped where they did not. So, and he totally rags on him for it too. He's he like, Hey guys, <laughs> you didn't even do this labor, right? He's talking, I don't know if he's talking about himself or about her, probably a bit of both. Saying you're going to now get to harvest this work that someone else did. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful contrast. There's the contrast of the whole dialogue with her that's, I think, strategically set after John 3, which has Nicodemus being the, you know, the, the teacher of Israel. He, he has everything the woman at the well doesn't have is true about him. And he's at the top of society and the top even of spiritual hierarchy, she is at the bottom of not just social and political hierarchy, but also spiritual hierarchy because of the divisions between the Samaritans and Jews. Yet, he's the one that never understands what he's saying, right? Everything that Jesus says, he doesn't get. It doesn't click with him until after Jesus dies, apparently. Whereas with the Samaritan woman, everything seems to click. She's smart as a whip. Like everything he says, she immediately gets it and moves to the next part. I mean, that's part of why I love the interrupted quality of the part you just talked about is you almost get the sense that Jesus preferred this conversation to other conversations. Ah, uh, yeah. He just yeah. keeps going with it. And I, I'm sure they've enjoyed part of paradise and eternity continuing the conversation, but, um, and maybe that's part of, you know, going on a couple things that are probably important to know is not just the way that Jesus talks to the disciples, but the way she, cause it sort of gives this aside. She left the water jar uh, and went back to town. There's sort of verse 27 through 30 is sort of like action notes. Like you have in a, a play where there's like stuff in italics or brackets of saying there's sort of like actors moving on the stage. There's no dialogue. And it inserts this one point of dialogue, which is what she said to the people back in town. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You mentioned she really picks up on the two key things, even though they didn't really talk about the husband's thing. Apparently that was important to her. And apparently she, apparently she knew it would be important to the people in town. 
And so whatever it was, whether it's pain or, or, or whether it's, you know, sinful things, shameful things, it was important to the people in the community. And it's repeated again at the end. Yes. Repeated at 39. Yeah, exactly. Because the Samaritan said he, he told me everything I ever did because so it became her testimony as a part of this sort of like his prophetic knowledge of her life becomes a key part of the testimony that convinces people. And so whatever that is, is important, but she doesn't just stop at that. She leaps all the way to, could this be the Messiah? And I, I don't recall where it's from, but I've heard some research talk about how the Samaritans had a particular interest in messiana, uh, messianic arrival. And that would make some sense for any kind of more marginalized community to kind of hope, hope for this sort of when the Messiah comes and all, he'll explain everything to us then. Marginalized communities, I think, sometimes have a little bit more interest in that stuff in general, sociologically. And so uh, I think it's interesting that that's her lead in, that not only is he prophetic, I think he could be the Messiah, which he, of course, explicitly said to her. She's not quite convinced yet, but she's close enough that she can start preaching, basically, start giving her testimony. Yeah, I love that. You're right. Her her sermon to the people is testimony. He knew something. He's clearly a prophet. It's testimony and a question. Come see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? Right? It's kind of like, and it's a come and see for yourselves, which we've seen, which was, which we mm-hmm. had in the passage that, uh, that you and I uh, looked at last time you were on the show, right? Back in John one. Yeah. Uh, you know, come and see. And it comes up between, uh, right after that with Philip and Nathaniel when Philip says, you know, hey, come mount the Messiah. And he's like, ah, from Nazareth, really? You know, and he says, come and see for yourself. And what does Jesus say? I saw you under the fig tree. Same kind of thing. He has prophetic yeah. knowledge, personal prophetic knowledge that always has more to it than we know on the page. It's like this secret that he has between the person. And that's enough for Nathaniel to believe. And it's enough, it's enough for this woman to believe. And I love that line at the end when they say, they go to her and say, not because of what you said, do we believe anymore now, but we've heard for ourselves. We know indeed this is the savior of the world, right? So they're, they're in, you know, this is the the founding of the church in Samaria kind of in advance before, you know, but they kind of underscore at the same, in the same respect that they did believe because of her at first. So it's like, Correct. we, we yes, believe, yes. but we no longer believe just because of that. We now believe like, it's sort of like we made it our, our own. Yeah. No longer is the word there in 42, right? It is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And I get the sense that we're being invited to have that same kind of encounter, right? It's, these are yeah. these eyewitness stories. You do believe because of what you've heard from others, but the invitation, the whole reason they're writing this gospel is down is you, you can start to have an encounter with this risen Lord yourself and actually believe him. Right. Because you have his words yourself, you know, well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, David Drury, and we are looking at John chapter 4, uh, verses 5 through 42, the famous encounter of the Samaritan woman at the well in the town of Sakar. Uh, yeah, let's explore some uh, some sermon starters. What uh, I mean, obviously, we've got a lot of fodder in terms of content, but in terms of form, approach, focus, what thoughts might you have for the next time you 
might preach this passage or for any of our listeners, what advice might you have for them about how to kind of get going on, on a sort of developing a sermon out of a, a, especially out of a long story like this. Hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges when you preach a long section is helping people grab thoughts from it in a, you know, in an outline manner, kind of coming up with points that they might recall. I definitely think this is a way easier passage to more treat narratively and to just let the story breathe and evolve without trying to go back and repeat quote unquote points. So I do think that when you preach a, a passage, especially this dialogical one that has multiple twists and turns, in a way, it's a one point sermon probably. And that's the last line that comes out of the Samaritan's mouth, you know, that this man really is the savior of the world. Or you could stop with just, you know, there go me, you know, it's like, I, I am he, I am in verse 26 from Jesus. But I do think that it's instead you're sort of building up to that and maybe just letting each thing evolve and letting the tension, you know, stay in the story as opposed to trying, it is a hard one to sort of say, here's my seven points out of, you know, John chapter four that are sort of like lessons. So it's sort of the anti, it's unlike everything Paul ever wrote, which is very much lends itself towards bullet points and, you know, major life lessons that can be isolated from one another. Or even in the Sermon on the Mount, you can sometimes do that. True. Where there's isolated ideas. Really, this is one, this is an event, an experience. It is. And you need to be drawn into it. I would think, I mean, now some people are at churches where it's very much part of the tradition that the, the passage would be read before the sermon, either by someone else as part of some kind of worship structure or at the beginning, at the top of the sermon. Mm-hmm. And, and I often do that and, and, and love to read the text, you know, this is one both on account of its length and its twists and turns that this is one where I don't know. I, I could really see it being nice one to just let it unfold over the course of the whole sermon, you know, kind of piecemeal it out, you know, just tell the story. So that means reading it over and over again, almost internalizing, maybe even memorizing the whole story, not in times of getting it word for word, but kind of getting all of the beats, you know, especially I could see really mapping out each turn in the conversation, you know, each kind of moment. How many times does he speak? How many times does she speak? I know the last time I added it up, I just saw my notes here. It goes, Jesus, her, Jesus, and then her, Jesus, her, and then Jesus, her, Jesus, and then her, Jesus, her, and then he gets the last line, 27. So I guess that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, with his getting that last word. So, I mean, and you could pair those up or put them in triplets, but I mean, I, I think some kind of like, again, not as points, I think that would make it super dull. That would kill the story, but like, so that it's kind of in your head, like the blocks in the yeah. story, right? right? So that you can just kind of walk people through it, you know, as the conversation unfolds. And I think actually the story just is really cool to include the moment in the back half. It is. I think that's that. Often that gets skipped. We just do their encounter, which is kind of our, which fits our individualism. But I think the, the triangulation with the, the disciples is actually a really cool moment, you know, that also includes some people in the room who might not really resonate with 
her experience as quickly, but might get this experience that the disciples are going under where they're like missing something, missing out on a moment and needing to kind of join in. But he's inviting them in. He's, I mean, he kind of teases them a little, but he doesn't berate them. He's saying, you're going to get to rejoice. You get to harvest now. Right. This other work that someone else is doing, you know, and the whole way that works, the blocking of how she goes off, you know, and then they have their whole conversation. And then, then she comes back with the crowd, you know, it's just too good. It's just, it's a narrative sermon. It's got to be. It's yeah. the only way to do it. I, I think the other, th- you know, it depends on the talent you have in a congregation, but it is one of the few passages in all of scripture that works as a live drama without editing. So let you well, you're right. You could just do it. You just talked about if you could get two actors plus a bunch of disciples that don't have many lines to act this out since almost all of it is dialogue, it really works on stage. And so it's probably one of the few passages that, you know, it like usually when churches do that kind of stuff, there's like a whole bunch of narration, right? This yeah. one, there's hardly any narration. There's a little bit of narration uh, at the beginning and the end, but almost all of it is non-narration. And I think you could cut out all of the Jesus answered her or, you know, when you say, sir, the woman said, you just cut out the woman said, you just have it. Those are stage directions. Be, they don't yes, need to be exactly. said. Yep. And yep. so, and then the whole like, leave the jar behind. I mean, a good director is going to have her social physical, you know, like, should I take my jar kind of physical note, even though that's never said, and then leave it behind, you know, and just run to town, like those kind of things. So I would imagine a, anybody that's into, you know, drama would love this. They'd be like, oh my goodness, this is going to be amazing. So I agree with you that it'd be nice to do that in a sermon, but if you could ever act it out, that would be ideal. And it would probably stick with people in the church just as powerfully, even though we preachers tend to think we're going to do the best job of that. It might work as a, as a little drama, um, but I agree with you kind of keeping that. It, it's hard. I, this is of course why so many of these sermons on this passage have left me with a little bit of irritation because there is this tendency to sort of set her up as almost a straw straw man straw woman i've joked that this is you know the other one's the good samaritan and then this is the bad samaritan passage we sort of set her up as the bad guy. And I just feel like, man, did they even read this? It's like, she is clearly portrayed in this passage as unlike almost anyone Jesus ever talked to. And clearly Jesus is interacting with her in such a way that's, that really lifts her up. And I feel like, you know, she's not the bad Samaritan, certainly not by the end, even if there is some, you know, pain or, you know, sinful stuff in her background, like there is for all people, but she, you know, she's That's lifted up as, as kind of the apostle yeah. to the Samaritans in many ways. I mean, I, not many people go and give their testimony. And like you said, the message of could the question, could this be the Messiah and has immediate results? Like everybody believes immediately. And again, that's been oftentimes given through the prison of, well, she was just such a bad person that people thought that if, if he knew about her past, this must be great. And again, I think that's a little bit of a presumption to make again, sort of maybe pulling the credit off of her. So I just think that that's a a cool thing to sort of maybe see her. And I don't think you need to go through all that as a preacher Um, that can belabor the point a little too much. I think you just demonstrate it by just saying like, man, this is so neat how she interacts. I think some of it, you mentioned the person of peace. 
I think the things like that to mention, like, I definitely think Jesus is sort of a modeling to us how to interact with people about our faith in a way. And so I do think that that's one way to preach this passage as sort of putting us in the role of Jesus and saying, okay, how are are you interacting with people that you meet in random settings? The other way, though, is to say, to put yourself in the role of Samaritan woman, that'd be not a quote-unquote evangelism training, but instead more of a like, what kind of conversation do you need to have with Jesus that might help you open up and transcend things that you're obsessed with and really focus on who he is and on what he wants you to do? Yeah, no, that's really good. I, I think you do maybe have to pick a lane there in terms of the the focus in the sermon. It's, it would be difficult to do both, although you could make an a, especially an with how to long it other. is. Right. I love that you're bringing up a drama. Remember skits? We used to do skits at church more. I, I liked skits. Isn't that what we called them? Skits. Now we're going to have a skit. Why did we call them skits? Where does the I word skit I have no come idea. from? That sounds like a dumb word now that I think what about is, it. Did Willow Creek make that popular? Is that kind You're of, right. Yeah, the Willow Creek I Association. Think, and that, that was, was really a, big in the 90s, though. Like, Yeah. It was all Nancy Beach, man. She wrote all those sketches. And then and, was, it, was it the – I think it was the worship movement that killed that because it wasn't cool. You know, like when the really cool worship music stuff started with Passion and Delirious and then eventually Hillsong kind of at the turn of the century. I mean, the rock stars think that theater kids are nerds. Let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> well, that was like the only, that's why you, you and I, the only thing left we can do is preach. Like, Cause you yeah. know, not, yeah. I mean, I can play drums, but I can't get up there with a mic and sing and do all that stuff. But anyway. Uh, just a side note on that uh, that person of peace line for if you, if for any listeners who might not know what we're talking about, there's this teaching in Luke chapter ten where Jesus is giving instructions to the seventy two, right? And he says, when you enter into a house, first say peace to this house, and if a, if a son of peace or a person of peace is there, or peace will rest on them. If not, it'll come. So it's kind of talking about that the spirit is going before you as you go out uh, on mission, and there there's there's going to be a person there to welcome you in literal hospitality, but then also a hospitality to the word and openness to the word. And in classic John fashion, kind of what we get in the form of a kind of general instruction is then given to us in the form of a narrative and dialogue with a very specific person, right? So we actually see Jesus doing that move. And if you were to kind of harmonize the gospels here, which I'm not a huge fan of, but sometimes it's illuminating that, that instruction, that 72 would come later in the story that would come after this. Uh, in sequence, you know, so he's already done it. He's already kind of shown them how to do it. And then when the time comes for them to do it, they kind of, that's what it looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. strike up a conversation. And, you know, I love the awkward turns in the conversation are almost a great moment of, I know for me, like, I know how to talk to strangers is fine, but like, how do you make that shift to gospel talk, you know, right? um, to sharing your faith? And I love, in a way, this story is just an example of, you just do it. <laughs> like it just happens. You know, it doesn't, there isn't some smooth transition because there aren't smooth transitions in this conversation. It just keeps turning into new places. And when there's resistance or what would be what, what, what I would perceive as resistance, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't yeah. see it as resistance. It's just one more way in. So, okay, well, we'll go there. We'll see where that takes us. And then she take brings up something else. Okay, well, we'll go there, you know? So the freedom with which he engages in a conversation directed towards the truth 
is deeply inspiring and liberating, freeing. Just do it. Just try it. Yeah, well, any final thoughts about this uh, beautiful passage and uh, preaching and teaching and acting and acting it? Yeah, I mean, you know, if somebody's not going through electionary order, um, a lot of people would just be preaching through the book of John. And I do think the book of John, the first half, has all these conversations. And so you could do a, you know, a series on the conversations with Jesus. And this is obviously a, a huge one, uh, as with Nicodemus in the prior one, prior passage. Another way to do it, you know, and I've never heard anybody do this, but if you could just go through all of the different passages that where Samaria is important as a more of a location based yeah. series to kind of hit, you know, obviously Samaritan woman, you could talk about the good Samaritan. There's the 10 who lepers and the one who comes back is a that's Samaritan. That's a great yeah. story that's in Samaria, which is often not mentioned that it's in Samaria. People just go through that whole thing and, and kind of miss that. Then you could go to, you know, the Great Commission, of course, you know, in Acts 1-8. And then Acts 8, where they go to Samaria. When, yeah, uh, which the great little Philip jewel there is you could say, if you yeah. don't do Acts 1-8, then God will do Acts 8-1 to you, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's great. Yeah, if you don't, <laughs> you're right, because yeah, it kind of flips it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, pause for every preacher to write that down right now, because I didn't come <laughs> up with that, good. but I've heard people use that before. <laughs> it's like, it, there's that sense to explain that a little bit, if we don't follow the Great Commission, which the, really in many ways the disciples didn't, they didn't spread out. It was Philip, you know, who went to Samaria, not the 12 disciples. God will then scatter you, right? Like it says throughout yeah. Samaria and, and sent or scattered. Yep. You better, better be sent or you'll be scattered by way of peace or persecution. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I mean, you could keep hitting that. I'm sure there's other Samaria moments to hit upon. I, I just do think that again, and, and I, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that I chose this one. I, for me, what animates, I think, preaching a passage or teaching it is getting amped up about it. And mm. this one, I may be more amped up about than others, but I think in some respects, part of the preaching process is getting to the point where you're just energized by it and see things. Now, in some ways, the arc of your prep need, you need to get to the point where you temper some of that down. Otherwise, the sermon is going to be an hour and a half long, but get to the real kernel of what is the thing to communicate that I think people connect with that. Like in some ways, just like the Samaritan woman was so excited about this man she met at the well, and people felt that when she came back to town, in a way, when you're a preacher or a teacher, you got to have some of that too where you're so excited about what you're about to say that they're, the people listening might not be excited yet, but they clearly know you are. And if you don't have a little of that sort of amped up nature about it, they can feel it and they can feel that it's a little perfunctory. And so in some ways she's a, a witness to us too and how to teach. Oh, that's good. An old uh, friend of mine one time said that uh, someone, when they asked them his, he's a teacher and his philosophy of teaching said, my philosophy of teaching is to have a contagious passion for the subject matter. <laughs> yes. Bingo. <laughs> and I love that. It's just well contagious said. passion for the subject matter. Well, we hope that that'll happen uh, for all you who might be preaching or teaching on this text uh, in the near or distant future. Uh, thanks, uh, Dave, so much for giving time. I always love interpreting scripture with you. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for your production work behind the scenes. Can't imagine doing this show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all the supporters of the show. If you'd like to become a supporter, 
Go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways you can support us there. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.